And I am going to be quite vulnerable in, in my answer to this. First of all, I felt a lot of guilt. I felt like I was giving in, you know, selling out on my baby because because Affectiva is like my baby. And what I've come to realize that it's it's not selling out. It is graduating to a new chapter. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. With their service solution part at least, it brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you. Smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion dollar moves together. Now let's get started. Rana, I'm so excited to see you, to finally have this. It's been months or almost a year with COVID, times of love, but it's been a tremendous year for you, Rana. Congratulations. How are you feeling? Have you fully sort of come to the moment that I've exited, this is the next stage? I am working on it. It's definitely been a process. I've been doing what I'm doing for the last 20 years and I've been co-founded the company almost 12 years ago. So a yeah. big part of my identity is related to the company. And so I'm figuring out like, what does it all mean? And trying to take a step back and kind of um, look at all the opportunities in front of me. It's yeah, good. It's all that. good. We're going to come back to that, but let's really, you know, take us back to the beginning of time here with really your journey. <laughs> Muslim Egyptian woman, and I know you've written this about your journey in, in your memoir. I see the book right there, Gold Decoded, that we want to talk about as well. But just bring us back a little bit into years ago, you know, when you were in Egypt, came across this book and decided that, hey, I'm going to go to Cambridge, England, and do something. Talk to us about this. You know, how did this all come to be? Why did this matter so much to you that you needed to do it? So I was born in Cairo, Egypt, we're Egyptian, and my family worked around the Middle East. So I grew up partially in Kuwait and then in Abu Dhabi. Both my parents are technologists. So from a very young age, I was exposed to the latest and greatest technology. And what struck me the most is how technology changes the way we connect and communicate with one another. And that's really been a common theme of my career. So I studied computer science as an undergraduate and really wanted to become faculty at the America. I thought, okay, well, I need to go abroad, get a PhD and come back to Egypt and teach. And uh, that was my first foray into research. And, and as you said, I read a book very serendipitously towards um, you know, the end of my undergraduate years called, the, called Affective Computing. It was written by this MIT professor, Rosalind Picard. And she posited that computers need to understand emotions just as humans do. And that literally, I was so inspired by the idea, changed the trajectory of, of my life and my research. So what was it about that book, really, that got you thinking about the way the world works? You know, was it the thesis of it? Was it her as a scientist herself and, and doing the work that she's doing? How did this influence you? You know, it was very interesting because I was thinking about how to build artificial intelligence. If you look at human intelligence, your IQ matters, but your EQ, your ability to 
have emotional intelligence and sense and understand other people's emotions, that's really key. So once you dive into the psychology literature, you realize that people who have higher EQs are just better humans. They're more likable, they're more persuasive, they're more successful in their personal professional lives. And that was completely missing from the narrative around AI or technology in general. So I was really intrigued by that. As you can tell, I'm a very animated human, right? Like I really, I really kind of tap into like people's like nonverbal signals, like sure, whatever you're saying is whatever you're saying, but how are you saying it? And what kind of facial expressions are going with it? So that kind of majority of our communication, which is nonverbal has always intrigued me. And I wanted to figure out if there was a way to build computers that can detect those signals. And how did you take this? I mean, you know, I think a lot of it is safe to say a lot of professors a lot of academics get wrapped up in a certain niche, right? You know, pursuing a right. certain topic, a certain thesis. But you then decide to build this into a company and actually get it to a commercial state and actually, you know, now have uh, exited it into the next level of with smart eyes. So, so talk to us a little bit about that transition from, I guess, that vision, right? You wanted to be educated, really, right. to then acting on it and building a sustainable business from it. You know, I always talk about outgrowing your dreams because to me, it was very interesting. My dream was to go back home and become faculty. But once I got to Cambridge and then built this emotionally intelligent machine and actually towards the end of my PhD, again, very serendipitously met Ross Picard in person. She was visiting Cambridge, giving a talk and wanted to meet with some PhD students. And she and I met up and just totally hit it off. And she said, why don't you come work with me as a postdoc? And of course I was like, oh, this is like a dream come true. So, so I joined her lab as a postdoc, still thinking it's academia. But very quickly at MIT, it became apparent that there was so much commercial interest in the technology. We had like at least 20 Fortune 500 companies wanting to buy our solution. And this was research code. So we didn't really have a mechanism to give it to the Pepsis of the world or the Bank of Americas. And so in 2009, she and I decided to co-found Affectiva. She stayed as an MIT professor and, and I basically kind of switched career from academia to industry and, and grew the company and brought in venture capitalists and for me, actually, what was the tipping point of going from academia to industry was realizing I have a very, perhaps, unique opportunity to bring technology to the world at scale, because academia is usually not at scale, and, and I felt like that could be quite transformative. Is that thought, I, I think what you're speaking to, I've, I've heard many said before, is that the biggest fear, if, if that could be the right word, is that the missed opportunity of not bringing right. this to the world, right? And the vision for what you can see. And I'm glad that you have brought that to us. So tell us a little bit. I mean, you know, we have a little bit of a snippet of what this technology does in, in integrating technology, uh, sort of different emotions. And I know you've built the largest emotion depository mm -hmm. that's now being used in a certain way. Talk to us a little bit about how that technology works and how has that evolved from, I guess, paper theory when you were uh -huh. researching it into right. the commercial life? So the core, I guess, technology, the premise is only 10% of how we communicate is in the actual choice of words we use. 90% is nonverbal and it's split almost equally between your facial expressions, your hand gestures, and your vocal intonation. My background, so my PhD work was all about the face. So I kind of built technology that can recognize your facial expression. So it can detect if you're smiling or frowning or looking surprised. And the way you do that is you, you use machine learning techniques like deep learning and neural networks. I'm sure a lot of our listeners and, and viewers have, have heard of these terms. But the key thing is we need gobs and gobs of data. We need hundreds of thousands of examples of diverse people smiling and frowning and, you know, looking excited. And so the data became really key. And over the last, you know, 10 or so years, we have amassed the largest natural emotion data repository. We have over 11 facial responses, which is about 5 billion facial frames from 90 countries around the world. It's just fascinating to see how different cultures express emotion around the world. I continue to find that just really fascinating. 
Yeah. So you used sort of these different facial expressions as a basis for different uses. Talk to us a little bit of some of the use cases here. And, and I know you came to a very important point where your values were tested, right? In terms of being approached, you were given a $40 million check to potentially use it in surveillance, but chose not to. So what, what, what were the use cases for this? And what did you eventually choose was the right use of your mindshare to, to use your words? The cool thing about this technology is that there are so many applications of it. I mean, we always joke as a team that any party we go to where people are like, oh, so what do you do? And we start explaining and, and inevitably the person will will say, oh, have you considered like gaming? Have you considered building a dating app? Like there's always so many applications. So the challenge for Affectiva and now SmartEye is to decide on which applications to focus on. Our very first use case at MIT actually was in autism. So we built this device. It was a Google Glass-like device with a Bluetooth headset and it gave the kids real-time feedback on his or her interaction. So it would say, you know, you know, this person looks interested, this person looks disinterested. And it was like a training and a, and a help, help, self-help tool. But at Affectiva, we realized that there were so many applications, everything from advertising research, where we help, gosh, 28% of the Fortune Global 500 companies get a sense of the emotional engagement their viewers have with their products and contents and services, to automotive. I'm sure we'll get to that because that was the premise of the acquisition eventually. But we routinely get approached to apply the technology in areas like security and surveillance and lie detection. And we just feel very strong. We actually have core values that we decided on when we first started the company. And you know they include things like everything has to be opt-in-based, consent-based very clearly. You have to get value in return for this very personal data you're sharing. And we just recognize that there's power asymmetry here, right? Like governments and big tech companies own all of this data, but me as a consumer, I don't have any say about how you use it or who gets access to it. And so we didn't want to play in that space. And, you know, in 2011, we were raising money for the company. We were almost actually out of money. We had two months runway and this uh, venture arm of an intelligence agency, um, they reached out and they said, we will potentially give you up to $40 million. We had got to pivot the company and focus on security and surveillance. And we just, it did not match our core values. And so we turned it down, not knowing if we're going to be able to raise money elsewhere. I mean, we were taking the risk of just running out of money and shutting down, but we felt it was the right thing to do. And we were able to raise money from other investors that share our core values and our vision. And to me, that's, you know, that's a real big lesson. If, if I were to do this all over again, I would still make the same decision and stick mm. to our core values, even if it meant less revenue for the company. Yeah, and Rana, that's such an interesting point to it. I want to dive deeper on. You started with a set of core values that you wanted to hold yourself to, you and your co-founder. As the years go on, you know, with the entrepreneurship journey, there are multiple pivots, you have to adapt, things like that. How do you know that what you've decided in the past rings true today? And, and what I'm bringing up here is, you know, Adam Rana, fellow YGL, who brings up the, the concept of rethink and rethink again, totally. right? And, and for you, I mean, Sure, there are certain elements of where we don't like the power symmetry, giving that to government, but it also serves a certain good, right? How do you think about that, especially as things evolve over time? This is a great question because you're absolutely right. I, we have over the course of Affectiva's journey the last 12 years, we, we would routinely actually have a debate, a company-wide debate. It was an open, you know, open forum where we would have the debate on whether we should reconsider this. Should we help governments? Especially, you know, every time we would see examples of public safety kind of floating, becoming front and, front and center of mind, we would pose the question, you know, should we reevaluate our decision? But every time we fell back to the same place, the technology's not ready, regulation's not there, it's not regulated at all. And there is just 
a lot of potential for abuse and discrimination and profiling. It was just, so it always felt not the right thing to do, but I agree with you. It's important to pose and repose the question because the world evolves and technology evolves and what society thinks of technology evolves. So um, good to hear that. Sometimes there's a lot of fear, right? Even this, let's talk about the landscape here. I think there's a lot of fear of AI. In movies, the first thought comes to mind is the robot learns, you know, whatever, and then attacks the human race. So there's a lot of fear. And I, I love one of the quotes in your book, which you say that the real problem is not the existential threat of AI, but really the ethical use of AI here. And, and I want to get your view on this. You know, when ethics is such an intangible concept, and you talked about diversity, you talk about things that, you know, I care deeply about as well, you know, in understanding different cultures, different standards. How does effective, uh, you know, in you being the leader at the helm, think about ethical lines here? You know, who decides and how do you think about this? So the way I like to think about it is I, I divide it into like two buckets, the ethical development of AI and then the ethical deployment of AI. So on the development side, it's really all about mitigating data and algorithmic bias. So, and I'll give you an example. If we trained, you know, a lot of the training data that's out there is basically middle-aged white men. So if you train these algorithms to detect various expressions of this non-diverse group of people, and then you deploy the algorithms on people like me or you, it's just not going to work because the algorithm has never seen people that look like us. It'll fail. And so I've been a huge advocate for really implementing processes within the company to make sure that the data is diverse and that we're very thoughtful and intentional in how we train and validate these algorithms. And that cuts across data collection, data annotation, data validation, like it's every single step of the way we have to like really be intentional about. And it's not easy because we're a small team, often under very kind of aggressive deadlines and product deliveries. And I think it has to come from the leadership, like, you know, the company leadership have to basically say, we are committed to mitigating bias even if it means we slow down product development a little bit, or even if it may, you know, it means we have to really think about the unintended consequences of this technology before we put it out there. So it's a slightly different approach than I think what we've traditionally seen with the big tech companies of go fast, break, you break know, fail fast, break it, and then beg for forgiveness. So I, I don't think that that's going to continue to fly. And I guess the theory of, of how you want to run your business is, is embedded in every single thing from the process, sourcing the data, so on and so forth. How do you even guide your team, you know, in something like this? And, you know, what comes to mind really is what you talked about in which big tech is known to be successful because they've been uh, taking risks. They've been scaling quick, move and break things and, and things like that. And, and how do you speak to your team about ethics when all around them, the environment is completely in a, in a different world almost? Yeah, I feel strongly that ethics is a business issue. It's not just marketing fluff. It's not just, you know, something you, you talk about on the side. It has to be deeply ingrained in every business decision. It has to be deeply ingrained in every business decision you make. And that includes, you know, what industries you play in, but it also includes how, you know, what form your product takes. And again, I, I think you have to be very intentional about it. So, so for a number of years before the acquisition, we had our executive team bonus plan, not just tied to growing the company, but actually to ensuring that we have operationalized how we mitigate bias in our technology. So that was really interesting, right? Like, so now all of the executive yeah. team are incentivized to pay attention to how we're doing around this whole ethics issue because part of their comp is tied to it. From what I know, this is quite unusual, but, but I think we need to see more forms of that. I mean, similarly, when we were raising money from investors, most investors didn't ask us about our ethics plan. And I was adamant to bring on investors that were savvy that way. And so we ended up in our last round, again, before the exit, with investors who were asking, 
oh, like, how are you thinking about ethics? Like, what is your, you know, ethics code of conduct? And I love that. We need more investors who care about this stuff because then that forces startups and other companies to, to be serious about it. And I love sort of the, the two-way dynamic here as well and you choosing your investors, right? And a lot of times startups are in this position where they feel, oh, you know, I'm running out of money. I just, I just need a check, like whatever. But then you right. don't realize it is really a marriage and, and you have the power to actually choose and pick your investors. And that actually has a, a larger impact on the whole industry. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. And now I want to turn to, you know, fundraising, as, as you talked about, it was two women. You were then wearing a hijab <laughs> yes. when you were just getting started talking mm-hmm. about emotion. How did fundraising go for you in the beginning? And, you know, what, what were you, some of your biggest lessons there? It was definitely challenging because to your point, we were primarily pitching to older men in the Bay Area, but also around the world. And yeah, two women, I was wearing the hijab. We're pitching an emotion company. It was tough. I will say we always got a lot of respect because we, we were the world experts when it came to this technology but we were so outside of what they were typically used to seeing in founders that it was just very risky for these investors to invest in. And and, and actually, that's why I've now become a huge advocate for not just supporting female founders, but we need female funders. We need more investors who are different because they're going to invest in different ideas and different entrepreneurs. And that's super key. And and I've actually, I'm part of an organization called All Rays. So I want to um, give a shout out to them because they support both sides of the equations. We support female founders. We do a lot of activity to make sure that they are getting in front of the right investors, but we also support women on their path to become investors. Everything from angel investing to you know starting and growing their own funds. So that's really key. So it was not easy. Once we got the first check, it was definitely, you know, we were well on our way. But even in the last, you know, in 2018, we raised a $26 million round from the automotive industry, very male dominated still. So right. it hasn't really changed. Unfortunately, we still have a lot of work to do. So from the point of which you raised your first check and had, I suppose, your first check, you had your MVP already, right? Yep. And then years later to that $26 million round, how did you feel the conversation shifted? When you say, you know, you still see how male-dominated it is, but how did the conversation shift? And, you know, what were some of your, I guess, lessons in, in fundraising there? I mean, one of the things that I really noticed is women tend to just be hedge a lot more. Like I remember even when I was pitching our deck and sometimes my chief strategy officer, super awesome guy would join me. I would always, you know, when I'm talking about our numbers, I would always say things like, I think this is going to become a billion dollar industry or a multi-billion dollar industry. The truth is I don't really know, right? Like we have assumptions in place and we have predictions in place, but, but I always hedged. And my male colleague, he was just like, this is going to become a multi-billion dollar industry by, you know, 2023. And I was like, whoa. And I I see that a lot. I hear that a lot. I've now started to do some angel investing and and I see that as a pattern. I don't know if there's a right or wrong, but I think once you know about this and you're aware of it, you you can just be a little bit more intentional, I guess, in how you come across. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands, everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it. 
Talking Too Loud wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. And was there anything in particular that I guess from a business standpoint, strategically that you learned about fundraising? You know, some people still see fundraising as a benchmark of success, right? But you and I know that it really isn't. Talk to us a little bit from a commercial perspective here, you know, what was your strategy? And and admittedly, before a, a big exit, many companies had raised a lot more than you have before that point of right. exit, right? It was part of a decision. Talk to us about that strategy there. For example, we have a combination of venture, you know, investors, but we also have strategic investors. And even that decision, when do you take strategic money versus venture money? That's like a big decision. When we raised our round in 2011, when we turned that big, you know, $40 million check and instead focused on finding other investors, we took money in from WPP, their big advertising conglomerate, and they ended up being our biggest client and partner. So they are both an equity investor, but they're also very strategic. And they accelerated bringing our product to literally 90 countries around the world in less than six months. It was amazing from a business standpoint. But what I guess I underestimated when we took the money from them is that they had a lot of leverage over us, right? They were on our board. There was some exclusivity in place, so we couldn't work with their biggest competitors. We still can't work with their biggest competitors 10 years on. I mean, who you bring on as investors and their agenda and their definition of success, like our strategics don't care about valuation. They're not valuation sensitive at all, but they do care about the business partnership. Our venture investors very much care about dilution and valuation and and all of that. So it's, it's just a very different lens on the business and knowing, you know, as a CEO or a founder that you will have different constituents with different agendas. That's really key because then you can, you can navigate it, I guess, and be more informed. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a great learning and, and definitely one that I think a lot of entrepreneurs discount, right? Because right. when you're sort of a little bit less powerful in the bargaining, you think, oh, business partner, this is great. This guarantees revenues, right. but then right. it's sort of hedging what you believe your, your growth to be, right? Exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, you know, just knowing that you're making these decisions, I don't know that I would have made a different decision, but just knowing going into it, that this, it has, it has implications for years to come, like all of these little decisions that you make, right. They compound over the years. So, so that was an important yeah. takeaway. And then honestly, again, like I wasn't very selective earlier in Affectiva's journey, but in 2018, I was quite selective around which investors we wanted to bring in. I made sure the two new funds we brought in had women partners and, or women, you know, senior in investment investors, basically, and also cared about diversity, right? Like, and you can tell, like these two particular funds asked about our commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. They wanted to know if what the numbers were. They wanted to see our commitment to ethics. And I was like, yes, we're aligned. We care about that too. So you move along years later and you get an offer for an acquisition by SmartEye. Uh, and of course, this has come about not overnight, but with uh-huh. years of, of conversations and, and toils and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about that part of the chapter. How did that come about? Were you already ready? Are you ever ready? <laughs> I think that's the question, actually, because over the years, we often got inbound interest to sell and it never felt right to me. And then mm-hmm. in 20. 20 actually at CES, just before the pandemic hit, we were at CES and, you know, exhibiting. And, and I always made a point of getting to know my competitors. So I, I, I know all of our competitors, CEOs, and we're, we're very respectful of each other. And this particular company, SmartEye, we went to their booth, they came to our booth. And I think we quickly realized that we were encroaching in each other's spaces. They've been around for 20 years. They're the global leader in driver monitoring. We are the new kids on the block, you know, using machine learning and data and and quickly kind of expanding, I guess, the application space of the technology. 
So, um, and we left, we left CS saying, okay, you know, let's stay in touch and let's think about partnering together. And then of course the pandemic hit and all of these conversations stopped. And then I think it's a combination of the pandemic. I think the pandemic just caused everybody to take a step back and, and rethink very, I guess, openly, what could the universe look like? It, it just it just made me question all of my assumptions. And we reinstantiated our conversations with SmartEye. And within, you know, I think we started talking again in October. And by January, Martin said, wait a second, you know, are you open to an acquisition? And I was like, hmm, maybe I am. And I, I, I even actually surprised myself with the answer. Mm. We were in the midst of raising capital for the company. So that was going to be the alternative path to just like continue to grow the company. And I, I, I just felt like going it together was going to be more fun and hopefully guarantees faster and bigger success than going it alone. So, um, and then we had to do all of this over Zoom, right? We had to literally negotiate the whole deal. You know, I think if it was not a pandemic, we would just hop, hop on a plane and meet in person and hash it all out. But we were just having FaceTime conversations um, every mm. day. And, so that was, that was uh, you know, how do you build true trust over Zoom? It's not so easy. You know, Rana, throughout this conversation, I noticed you used the, this word a lot. I <laughs> felt this was the right time. And of course, you know, someone who leans into emotion, right? This makes sense. But when you say, I felt here, correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of your gut feeling, your intuition that this is the right time. You're the world expert on this, right? Oh. <laughs> emotion. How do you hone into that? You know, because I think as, as leaders, we come across different opportunities all the time. And sometimes it's an opportunity cost, right? You know, sure, there'll be you know, tons of fish in the ocean, but what we don't talk about is every choice is an opportunity cost. So how right. do you think about that? And, and in your context of your exit to Smart Eye, what made you say, I felt that was the right thing to do huh. at that time? So we're both young global leaders at the World Economic Forum and WEF has an amazing framework for responsible leadership. Mm. And it's five, you know, five pillars for what makes a responsible leader. Examples are data-driven and, you know, caring about your stakeholders are at large, including the community and society you're in. But one of them is intuition. And I think that that's, it's a superpower if you're able to tap into it. And I have to say, like, I do a lot of journaling. I don't know about you, but I just try to use it as a way to almost listen to myself. It's actually pretty amazing how some of my journal entries are like lead indicators so, so I'll give you an example. Sometimes I'll say, oh, you know, Dan doesn't look like he's in a good place. Like, I wonder what's going on. And then two weeks later, Dan quits. And part of me is like, if I just had listened to my gut more strongly and proactively, you know, checked in with Dan, I might have convinced him to stay, right? So my gut is almost like an early kind of sensor for things around me. And, and I think if you're able to take the time to listen to your intuition, I think it can be very powerful. So, and especially in the pandemic, I mean, I've always been a big you know, I journal a lot, but during the pandemic, I just made a lot of time to just think and reevaluate and reflect. And so I felt, <laughs> it's interesting that you noticed that. <laughs> I don't know if I was aware that I, that I, I stayed a lot, but yeah, it felt like the right time. And talk to us for, you know, specific to Smart Eye as the acquirer. I mean, I love how you uh, keep a close eye on your competitors and what they're doing. I mean, there were many in the market, right? That there were different use cases for what, what the mm -hmm. technology can be brought up to be you chose driver monitoring systems, you chose smart eye. What was it about them? What was it about this? I mean, it's a multi-billion industry, but talk to us about your vision here and, and why this made sense to you. On a number of levels, first of all, like let's start with the technology. Our technologies are very complementary. They do eye tracking, we do emotion recognition and interior sensing for the automotive industry. Our technologies plug in really well together. So, so that was like checkbox number one. Checkbox number two was the culture of the teams. And in my interactions with, especially at CES, when we had the opportunity to meet face-to-face, -face, 
I just felt like we shared a very similar culture. We're very R&D focused, no egos, you know, it's just about getting stuff done and caring about ethics too. Like that was very important to me. And it was clear that they care about that as well. And then the kind of third piece of it, I just got along really well with Martin. And I felt like it was actually bizarre because I meet a lot of CEOs and I've never actually met a CEO who has the same exact vision like I do. And he uses like similar words. I was like, that is like, he sees an application of this technology across industries. We will eventually get there. He uses the, I, I, we say humanizing technology before it dehumanizes us. And he said, you know, he uses the wording bridging the human machine gap. And I was like, wow, like you're so aligned in terms of vision. That was exciting as well. I think it's important to always be honest. It's still hard, right? Integrating two teams, two cultures, two organizations. We do things one way, they do it a different way. And so this is all like taking time. But I think at a high level, we're aligned on where we want to go and, and how we want to get there. There's a lot of mutual respect. So we will make it happen. It'll take time, but we will get there. If you can uh, talk to us a, a little bit about, you know, your new role now, you've taken on the title as deputy CEO. What does that mean? And, you know, what does that mean from a larger scale of your role in Smart Eye and also Effectiva and the initial vision? Has it evolved in, in a certain way? What's the vision sort of, you know, years down the line here? So deputy CEO is apparently a title that is, is more common in Europe, but it, it's essentially like a co-CEO. So my role is to partner very closely with Martin, the CEO, and you know, put in place a strategy for growth, execute that strategy, really focus on integrating the two companies and exploring what's next, right? Like we're focused on the automotive industry, but, but we also have our antennas up for what other market opportunities are there. And, and actually already, we um, just in the last couple of weeks, we acquired a company called iMotions. They integrate mm. multiple sensors. They have a software platform and we've known them. We've worked with them for many, both companies actually have worked with them for many years. So it was very synergistic to what we were doing. So just keeping an eye out for these synergies and how we can grow is a big part of my role. And then I will continue to kind of be an advocate for AI innovation and how can we apply the latest kind of innovations in the AI space, but do that with ethics and consideration. That's always going to be something, you know, I care deeply about. And then just finally, I think communication is very, very important, especially when you're bringing teams together that way. And so a big part of my focus is both internal and external communication. I spend a lot of time reaching out to folks in Boston, in Egypt, in, our, in Sweden and other offices we have around the world and just checking in and making sure that the teams are communicating effectively. So that's that's a big area that I'm spending energy on. So how big is the team now? I mean, when, when the acquisition happened, remind me, how many employees did you have? So SmartEye were 150 employees uh, headquartered in Gothenburg, Sweden, and we were about 120. So it's like the company has doubled in size. Wow. Yeah. And then now we've brought on um, iMotions and they're about 50 people too. So uh, it'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. And that's a big chapter. I mean, you know, it's the merging and I, I love, uh, you know, how raw you are. And, and I think, you know, people expect that, right? The post-merger integration, essentially, that usually is a whole consulting team to do yeah. that for, for a certain reason. And, you know, where I want to go with this is what I've realized, female founders talking, going back to, you know, topics we care about, female founders are now exiting quicker and at higher valuations. Mm-hmm. That's a good news story and also a bad news story, right? Because for some, it's under circumstances where they're burned out and mm-hmm. they no longer want to do it. And that's the best, or if not, you know, for some, the only option. Some, you know, may not have the access and opportunities that you've had with multiple choice of investors wanting to write you that check and therefore the exit makes sense. So, you know, mm-hmm. trying to be true to, you know, this reality that we're faced with here, when you were thinking about your exit, you know, and now learning to power through and finding a new identity, what would you say to founders that are having these considerations of, do I continue on or do I go? And I am going to be 
quite vulnerable in, in my answer to this. First of all, I felt a lot of guilt. I felt like I was giving in, you know, selling out on my baby because because Affectiva is like my baby. And what I've come to realize that it's it's not selling out. It is graduating to a new chapter, right? So so my daughter, you know, just turned 18 and she just started college. And so we moved her into her dorm and I, I haven't given up on her. It's just a new form of our relationship, right? And and I, and you know, we exited at exactly the same time when she was graduating high school. And it's 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 the same with Affectiva. We haven't sold out but we are starting a new chapter for this journey. You know, Affectiva lives on and now we're part of this bigger company and we have more, you know, power to, to go make things happen. So that's kind of point number one, just kind of put it in perspective. I think that's really key. Second is be kind to yourself. I don't know that I'm totally burnt out because I love what I do, but a big part of me was thinking about the opportunity cost as well, right? Like I want to do a lot of other things. I want to serve on boards. I want to help young founders young as in early in their journey, help them, you know, find their path and, and support them, especially overlooked founders and ideas. And so I want to start a fund, for example, right? And I, I'm teaching at Harvard Business School. So I want to do all these other things. And there was no way I was going to get around to that as CEO. So this gave me an opportunity to, I guess, free up some of my my brain cycles and my time to explore some of these other venues. And, you know, I think that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So um, it's definitely not easy. I also found out that there is a a lot of documentation about how when founders exit their babies, their companies, there's an identity crisis because for the longest time I've been associated with Affectiva and and now that's changing, right? And so I feel like, okay, who am I? <laughs> what do I stand yeah. for? So it's it's definitely a, a journey of introspection and, and just being patient, which I'm not good at. <laughs> and as I think many high performers are not, right? And it's interesting that you right. bring this up. I, the last conversation that I had was with, uh, you know, Susie Rogers, British athlete who was a broad, you know, gold medalist and all that in, in swimming. And now it, she's on to the next stage as well. And she was saying mm -hmm. how it's hard. It's really hard, right? You know, everyone focuses on the performer, the athlete. And I think right. as CEOs, you are an athlete in a certain way. Right. You're sort of on stage, you're on all the time. So everyone focuses on your development at that time. But what happens after? How do you think about that? And how do you transition and to make the most of, of this exit that, that you've built? And reinvent yourself, right? Like what are the core experiences and skills that I've acquired over the last, you know, 12, 15 years as an entrepreneur that I can bring with me to, to the next chapter, right? And for me, for example, SmartEye is a public company and that's different, right? So I'm learning a ton. And I was just at the board meeting in, in Sweden a few weeks ago. And because it's a public company, it's different. So I'm savoring that and I'm enjoying that. I'm trying to learn lots. But then again, like, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, you know, what have I learned as an entrepreneur that I could then use as almost like a differentiator if I start a fund, bring that operator experience, bring that founder experience. So, um, yeah, I, I think like reinventing and almost like reskilling yourself is, is, is very important. I also actually want to give a shout out to another YGL member who is April Brin and she oh, yes. has a, yeah, she Lots. talks about the flux and having a career portfolio or a portfolio career where you, you are a number of things. You're not just one thing that totally applies to you, Sarah. And I think <laughs> it applies to me as well. So I'm thinking about that as well. Like what is my portfolio? I absolutely love that. Well, Rana, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here from AI to, you know, your founder journey and some of the hard lessons. Uh, it's now time for sort of the fire round okay. billion dollar question. So eight quick questions and your quick responses to it. Okay. Let's go. High is high. <laughs> I think it's when my daughter got into college. That was a real moment of gratitude and celebration. Low is low? 
Ooh, that must be in 2013, where I was moving from Cairo to Boston on my own with two young kids, divorced, mm-hmm. and a lot of influx and challenges at, at Affectiva. That was definitely a low point. I felt alone and lonely. When you think of the word successful, who do you think of and why? I am a huge fan. I, this sounds cliche, but it's so true. I am like a huge fangirl of Michelle Obama. I just love what she's done and hope one day I'll have you know, just, just broad impact. It's, it's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Common misconceptions about Rana. Oh, people see that I'm nice and they think I'm weak. And ah. I'm like, no, 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 no. I can be nice, but that, you know, I'm also kick-ass. Worst advice that you've been given? I think just ad- advice that's along the lines of, oh, that's like too risky. Nobody's done this before. You know, you're going to fail miserably. Like, why do that? Like, why don't you just like stick to your, you know, stick to the path, you know? I've heard that so many times when starting the company, when getting my PhD, and now, you know, now that I'm considering a fund, you know, I keep getting, well, but you don't know anything about investing. Like, why, why don't you just like continue the path you're on? And so Mm. I've learned to ignore this advice. Your favorite productivity hack or tool? I've gotten into the habit of spending 10 minutes in the morning doing affirmations, but also being like listing my intentions for the day. And that's Mm. really been helpful to get me to focus on the things that matter and not just little things that, that don't that don't add up. Yeah. I know you mentioned Rosalind Pickard for your favorite book, but let's choose another one. Another favorite book and why? I love The Obstacle is the Way. I think that's an amazing, very easy read. And it just talks about how we all run into obstacles, but successful people are those who find a way through. And it could be around it, above it, below it, but, but like you, 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 found, you find a way through the obstacle. And I, I love that. And now uh, this is a shout out for your book. And this is almost like choosing your favorite children. But if you could think about a single part of the book that's your favorite, which part would that be? Oh, I I know the answer to that. There's a chapter in the book where I talk about um, becoming a U.S. citizen and how I had to study for the test. And that same year, we bought a house in the Boston area and just like really made the U.S. our home. And and I talk a lot about what what that meant for me kind of professionally, but also personally. And I I love that chapter. We will be highlighting that. And finally. Three qualities. I mean, you talk about your daughter that's off to university and, you know, she's done some amazing things already. Uh, Kudos to you, mom. But for your kids, right? What are the three qualities that you want them to continue to espouse and hold as core values for their lives? You know, it's funny you ask that because we spend a lot of time as a family deciding on these core values. And incidentally, we spend a lot of time as a company deciding on these values and they overlap hugely. So the Mm. top three would be be a lifelong learner, always have intellectual curiosity about the world and about people and cultures. So that's number one. Number two is be empathetic, prioritize human connection, be compassionate, be kind. I always tell my kids' teachers, like, I don't care if they ace the math test. I mean, I kind of care, but I, I care more that they're kind and compassionate with their peers at school and just respectful of everybody. So that's number two. And then number three is work hard. No slackers in our home. You have to love it. Always work hard. Love it. And on that note, you know, you're working so hard. Uh, I know on your next track player, and I'm so excited for your portfolio career and, and how that turns out. But really, Irana, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been really insightful and really grateful to you for, for sharing your insights that will inspire. I know it, it's inspired me and also the next generation of founders and funders that tune into this. Thank you, Irana. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.